Welcome to Screencast, Screen's podcast series where our lawyers and other industry or thought leaders share their views and insights on various legal issues and developments in Malaysia. Welcome to part two of our series on occupational safety and health. We welcome back Shannon and Ruben from Screen's Occupational Safety and Health Practice Group. In the last episode, we discussed the latest amendments that have been introduced through the Occupational Safety and Health Amendment Act 2020, which was recently passed in Parliament. Over time, we found that some companies had similar occupational safety and health-related queries, which they wanted answers to. In today's podcast, we will deal with some of these OSHA-related queries for the benefit of our listeners. So Shannon, we understand that the amended OSHA has been passed but has yet to come into force. In terms of investigations which are presently ongoing, would the Department of Occupational Safety and Health consider the new requirements under the amended OSHA when determining whether the company breached its statutory obligations? Essentially, your question revolves around whether the amended OSHA will have prospective or retrospective effect when it comes into force. First, it must be understood that a violation of OSHA is a quasi-criminal in nature. This basically means that it's not a criminal offence, but it is subject to a penalty which is similar to a criminal offence. Since it has features of a criminal offence, Article 7 of the Federal Constitution grants protection against retrospective criminal laws. So, for example, if a person committed an offence under the existing OSHA, which carries a fine of 50,000 ringgit, but the actual prosecution of that offence came after the amended OSHA came into effect, he will not be liable for the penalty under the amended OSHA, which is a fine up to 500,000 ringgit. So, under the amended OSHA, I note that there is an increase in penalties imposed personally on the directors, officers and supervisors of the company for OSHA breaches. If there was an accident, who would the Department of Occupational Safety and Health bring a personal action against since there are many people who can be liable? It's difficult to give a precise answer. DOSH has wide powers under the Act and can pick whoever within the company to bring a personal action against. It could very well be the lowest hanging fruit, which means the person who was in charge of the safe operations of the company, who had clearly and blatantly breached his obligations and was negligent that led to the incident. Other times, it could be the directors of a company, and this is done to send a clear message to not only the company, but also others, that flagrant breaches of OSHA will not be taken lightly nor tolerated. Thanks, Shannon. We understand that OSHA imposes obligations on companies to appoint a safety and health officer in some circumstances. In addition to that, the amended OSHA has now introduced a provision for the appointment of a safety and health coordinator. In relation to companies that have more than one plant or companies which have various offices, does that mean that the company would have to employ more than one safety and health officer or coordinator? It is our understanding, based on a reading of the amended OSHA, that the requirement to appoint a safety and health officer or coordinator applies to each individual place of work. This interpretation that the requirement to appoint a safety and health officer or coordinator applies to individual places of work appears to be consistent with the amendments introduced to Section 29 of OSHA. Section 29 is a section which requires the appointment of the safety and health officer. The original Section 29 subsection 1 provides that it applied to certain classes or industries as specified by the Minister. 
However, now, pursuant to the amended OSHA, the word industries under Section 29 has been replaced with the words place of work. Further, the amended OSHA also introduces a new subsection which says, a person shall be appointed as a safety and health officer only for one place of work at any one time unless permitted otherwise by the Director General. Now, from these amendments, it would appear that the intention of Parliament was for these appointments to be in respect of each place of work. If a company has different offices or plants, each office or plant is viewed as a separate place of work. Each place of work requires the appointment of either a safety and health officer or safety and health coordinator. Thank you, Ruben. Moving on to the issue of liability of employers. It is common to see employers appointing a contractor to carry out certain specialised works, which the employer has no control over. One of the most frequently asked questions is, if an accident occurs on the employer's premises, who really is at fault? Well, each incident, of course, has its own set of facts, and this answer may eventually depend on the specific set of facts during that particular incident. Ah, it's so vague, it's the famous last words of any lawyer, I guess. However, the issue of whether an owner can delegate liability to an independent contractor is one which has been extensively argued before the courts. In the Supreme Court case of Datuk Banda DBKL against Ong Kok Peng, while the rule that an employer of an independent contractor is not liable for the default or negligence of such contractor, there are certain exceptions. The first exception is that where an employer has not exercised care in selecting a competent contractor. The second exception is when the duty to take care is said to be non-delegable. To explain what amounts to a non-delegable duty, the Supreme Court held that a statutory duty imposed on a person is in itself non-delegable duty. So, for example, an employer cannot seek to delegate responsibilities under sections 15, 17 and now the new sections 18a and b under the amended OSHA to an independent contractor or any other persons. In a situation where an employer has no expertise in the type of work carried out by the independent contractor, how are they expected to still comply with the obligations under OSHA or the amended OSHA? OSHA or the amended OSHA, does not impose standards which are unreasonable for an employer to achieve. The standard that is required to be satisfied by the employer, self-employed person or principal is the standard of practicability or standard of so far as is practicable. Now, the exact definition for what is practicable has not been provided for under the Act. But what the Act does tell us is that practicable means practicable having regard to a. The severity of the hazard or risk in question. B. The state of knowledge about the hazard or risk and any way of removing or mitigating the hazard or risk. C. The availability and suitability of ways to remove or mitigate the hazard or risk. And D. The cost of removing or mitigating the hazard or risk. Now, there are a multitude of ways for an owner or employer to satisfy their obligations under OSHA. This can include... Number one, having a safety and health policy in place, setting out the safety and health requirements of the company. Number two, requiring the contractor to submit a job method statement. Number three, carrying out a job hazard analysis before the contractor proceeds to carry out works. Number four, carrying out toolbox meetings before the contractor proceeds with the works. Number five, having warning signages in place in the premises. And number six, 
ensuring that the employees put on the necessary PPEs or personal protective equipment. Of course, what I've just mentioned is a non-exhaustive list. This would eventually vary depending on the circumstances of the case. Again, circumstances of the case, as the famous last words of lawyers. <laughs> Thank you, Ruben, for guiding us through the practical and proactive steps which can be taken by employers to satisfy their obligations under OSHA. Moving on to a current practice which some companies are implementing right now, working from home. We know that a lot of companies have adopted hybrid working mechanisms as a result of the COVID pandemic. Does OSHA apply to employees working from home? As mentioned in our previous session, the existing OSHA Act is only applicable to specific industries such as mining, finance, construction and others as stated in the first schedule of the OSHA. However, Section 2 of the amended OSHA aims to extend the scope of the applicability of OSHA to all places of work throughout Malaysia. Reading this together with the clarification by the Human Resources Minister during the parliamentary debate, it appears that places of work would also include those who are required to work from home. In view of this, as soon as the amended OSHA comes into force, employers who fall under the purview of OSHA have to take a pragmatic approach and ensure a safe and secure working environment for employees working from home. That's really interesting and we hope to see uh, this point being developed in case laws in future. So how is an employer expected to ensure a safe working environment for employees who work from home? At the moment, there are no specific guidelines by DOSH setting out the health and safety requirements to be complied with when dealing with work from home arrangements. However, we have identified several options which employers may consider implementing for its work-from-home programs. Firstly, it would be prudent to prepare a specific work-from-home health and safety policy document. Second, carry out a risk assessment to consider whether the employee's home office is suitable for the tasks that the employee is required to perform. And this could include looking at things such as ventilation, temperature, lighting, even the chairs, ergonomic chairs, for example, and a host of other issues. At first glance, it may appear to be impracticable to carry out risk assessments for employees in bigger organisations. And in such a scenario, the employees could fill up a declaration form or a checklist that their home office meets the requisite safety and health standards. Once the relevant risk assessments are conducted, employers should ensure that its employees know the health and safety risks and propose possible measures to remove or mitigate these risks. Employers should also provide the employees with contact details of designated persons within the company, for example, the HR and IT managers. This is so that employees may communicate with these personnel to continuously ensure an effective and safe working environment. This promotes active and regular communication between employer and their employees, which is vital for work-from-home arrangements. What I have mentioned is merely some of the options that employers could implement to comply with the obligations under OSHA, and it is certainly not an exhaustive list. I do, however, caution that although work-from-home arrangements are now very popular post-pandemic, however, the employers need to also take into account whether there are adequate systems in place to protect sensitive and confidential information of the companies when an employee works from home, for example. Here's a question to you, Joanna. Another topic which has recently sparked more interest in this era of the pandemic and lockdowns is the issue of mental health. Can you tell us how OSHA deals with mental health? I understand that the purpose of OSHA includes promoting an occupational environment for persons at work to meet their psychological needs. 
not just their physical needs. The guidelines of OSHA have defined health as a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease. The protection of mental health of workers is not a foreign concept to our Malaysian Department of Occupational Safety and Health. In fact, they recognise the repercussions of work-related stress and hence they have issued a guidance on the prevention of stress and violence at the workplace to provide a proactive approach in preventing and reducing the causes of work-related stress and violence. This guidance identifies the type of hazards and risks involved subject to the nature and characteristics of the work. For example, poor pay, career uncertainty or stagnation are stress factors in an industry that demands career development. Inflexible and long working hours is also a stressor on workers. This guidance explores methods to improve workplace arrangements and practices to activate effective reporting, recording and evaluation systems. Notwithstanding that, these are merely guidelines and OSHA appears to place more emphasis on the physical aspect of safety and health. It has expressed provisions on prescribing the physical conditions at work, safety measures on handling equipment and hazardous substances, wearing protective clothing and such. There is definitely more room for development in the policy and legislative framework of OSHA to address mental health problems of workers. Thanks, Joanna. And uh, just to add to what you've said, the Employment Act 1955 also contains specific provisions for the regulation of working time, including rest days, the length of working hours, rest breaks, shift work, and the maximum number of hours of overtime allowed. In addition, the Employment Act also provides protection for workers against sexual harassment arising out of or in the course of their employment. It appears that there is still room for development to the legal position on the liability of employers in relation to the mental health of their employees and it would be interesting to see how this plays out in future. We have now come to the end of our two-part episode of Screencasts on the Occupational Safety and Health Act 1994 and its new amendments. Thank you Shannon and Ruben for providing clarity to some of the important occupational safety and health questions which affect individuals and companies covered under OSHA. The discussion was certainly helpful and we look forward to see how the provisions of the amended OSHA are applied in practice to improve the standards of safety and health at workplaces in Malaysia. Thank you for tuning in to Screencast. The views and explanations expressed here are for purposes of information only and may not apply to all circumstances or may no longer be accurate due to subsequent developments. You are encouraged to consult a qualified lawyer for any specific legal queries or issues faced.